0: Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. This week, I get to have the plague, because Mark was so gracious to bring it into my home and give it to me. It was all the making out, I think. So at this point, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in every week. This all came about was when we finished games early and there was not enough time to start another. We'd sit and chat about games and stuff. I just wanted that to continue. And you know, those all those points when you know a game is very bad, but you're biting your tongue the whole time, and as soon as the last turn is taken, you know, the eruption of the table occurs, and so and I'm glad you guys are listening. That's all I want to say. I, for one, am glad that there's a venue
1: for us to talk, so we don't have to exchange words at any other time.
0: It's so true. So, this is a podcast about board games. First, we're going to talk about games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about some news and why it does not matter. Then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Battlecon. And then our topic of the day, which is catch-up mechanics. Mark, what did you play this week? So I get to play
1: a lot more Street Masters Redemption. I should probably stress at the outset I haven't played many new games this week, partially because first I was sick with the plague that I then transmitted to you, which was great, but thanks for taking that off my shoulders, by the way. That was great. But also because there's so much new content for two very, very similar co-op games, one of them being Street Masters. I got the Redemption and the Twin Tigers expansion, I talked a little bit about the Twin Tigers expansion last week, this week I've been putting Redemption through its paces, and I have to say that the boss characters that they've made now playable fighters are all super interesting. And there have been serious problems with the fulfillment from their web store at Blacklist Games, but... All told, uh, from order to delivery, it took a little over two weeks as far as I was concerned. So for people who are concerned, I noticed that some people actually cited us in their concern about dealing with Blacklist. And I can respect that, but it took them a little bit of time, but they did fulfill. I'm still waiting on replacement uh, components from July, but there has been movement on that front, and I will let you know the moment that I get the replacement stuff. At any rate, the game is so good. I'm still really enjoying it. Solo, as, as you pointed out, is so quick and so engaging. You know, you can set up and play an entire game in about 30 minutes. And I did that about four or five times over the past week just to try out new stuff and see new things. And just the the way that the very, very, very simple, low-maintenance spatial aspect of the game works out. I frequently commented in games like Assault on Doomrock, even a little bit on Too Many Bones, that I really, really appreciate how they abstract away the spatial element. So it's very unusual for me to appreciate that a game took what could have been a static affair and introduced a spatial aspect for it to work so well. But I've praised Street Masters enough. It's uh, a really solid experience, and the quicker the quicker you can get it out, the better. Sometimes you can drag a little bit with more players, but definitely with a low-player count. It's, it's it's all for the good, and the new expansions have been keeping up the high level of quality. There's going to be another Kickstarter in October for a new product called Aftershock with a kind of strange post-apocalyptic tone. I don't know about that, but thematically, Street Masters doesn't do a whole lot for me, but mechanically it gets a lot right, so I've really been enjoying my subsequent plays of Street Masters.
0: We've been getting Sentinels of the Multiverse to the table a lot lately because of the new stuff. And also because I had like a self-imposed block on it for like the last two years. I'm not sure when I put myself into it, whether it was when the expansion was announced or when the Kickstarter finished or or it doesn't really matter. But now...
1: Can we talk about that for half a second? Because I've been thinking about that too. I have the same process. If I know, if I have a game, even if I adore it, right? And I know that an expansion is coming out, I won't play it until the expansion is in my
0: hands. And I have no idea why. Yeah, no, I do the exact same thing. Well, I don't know. It's maybe because you don't want to you know overplay it and not be maybe it also builds the excitement right you know the anticipation because we've talked about this before in kickstarters that the anticipation of how much the kickstarter is going to get the anticipation of watching all the funding goals get hit and then you know the how you know they send you updates and then the shipping notice comes and then it's this constant build-up and not playing the game might be just part of that right is that you know you building up the tension even more. Maybe.
1: I, I'm not very susceptible to that kind of tension. I don't enjoy it. I wish I could turn... I, I should feel like 90% of the time after I read an update, I wish I hadn't been bothered. It's kind of like a weird opportunity cost. It's like, I'm spending this time with this product that in many ways is incomplete. And I could wait and spend that same amount of time later with a better experience, which, which is absurd. This makes no sense. Neither of us played Sentinels for a couple of years because we were waiting for Oblivion, which is absurd. We both love Sentinels. I know. And we've been having such a blast playing all the non-Oblivion stuff that came out. But we've given ourselves permission to play the game again because the new stuff is in. It's
0: absurd. I love it. I really do. The human mind is amazing. Yeah, so, yeah, we've both been playing a lot of Sentinels. And I think we might be both... What do you think about the new characters? And we're thinking that maybe they have a little bit of creep? What are your thoughts on this so far?
1: On the one hand, I agree with you. And uh, particularly the character that you've devoted the most attention to, Lifeline, seems to be capable of amazing feats of nonsense. At great cost, but overall manageable. But on the other hand, let's not forget that the base game, the first set, included such characters as Wraith Legacy and Tempest, who are arguably three of the most lunatic overpowered characters anyway. So I think that the crazy levels of imbalance between incredibly powerful to borderline useless has existed in Sentinels from the beginning, because it's worth reiterating, it's an incredibly dumb game that we love to play. So I don't know if there's power creep to be honest.
0: and also I like I'm going to compare it a little bit to Spirit Island as in the fact that we really like to challenge ourselves like you like you sometimes we take certain characters to hinder ourselves and go against more powerful bosses to you know beat us down, just like in you know Spirit Island where we ramp it up to a ridiculous thing just to get you know destroyed. you know what I mean It's like this odd thing you know trying to overcome overwhelming odds.
1: In that respect. I will grant you that there's a similarity between just just in that nothing
0: about gameplay, nothing just just the fact that you know it's you're able to totally modify so many different things in order to make it harder.
1: I I will say this though, especially since as I say, I've been spending the entire week playing a lot of Street Masters and a lot of Sentinels, and in both of our reviews of those two games, we stressed their similarities to each other. And when playing Street Masters, I really feel the absence of the fleshed out world. And when playing Sentinels, I wish I had the choices that I did in Street Masters. In Street Masters, there are just so many more choices to be had, and in Sentinels, the universe is just so compelling. In an ideal universe, as I've said before, Street Masters would have been what Sentinel Tactics was. You know, It would be the Sentinels game with minis on a board, uh, but unfortunately we have the Sentinel Tactics that we have, which is you know better left forgotten, and indeed Greater Than Games seems to have officially abandoned the product line in, in, in a large sense. And instead we have uh, Street Masters as it is, which is still a very compelling product, uh, but uh, yeah, I just I, I wish the two could come together. That would make me so happy. Another game that we've reviewed and enjoy in the co-op sphere, that's very much the sort of week that we've been having, is Seal Team Flix, the only game that matters. Pulled it out again by popular acclaim, I should point out, a number of people locally have been uh, bringing it up not infrequently. and We finally took the hint and we broke out Seal Team Flix. And one of the things that really the the recent playing emphasized to me is how clever and fun some of the boards are we played on our favorite map namely the subway map and i adore the subway map it offers lovely little tactical opportunities lovely little opportunities to get blindsided by things you really should have seen coming and it really does have a strong level of verisimilitude and cosmetic appeal you know all the things that you'd want in in a board of this type and our playing of SEAL Team Flicks had the opportunity of specialization. Someone went and took care of a whole bunch of time bombs. Someone else was in- involved in busting down the door and spraying lead everywhere. You spent much of the turn, uh, much of the game, building up to an ambush that worked out extremely well. It was great. Uh, very much like other games, though, I think it's slightly better at lower player counts because sometimes you end up with wasted turns where it's like, okay, well, it doesn't really shake out for me to uh, for, for me to be able to do much. But Seal Team Flix has been doing very well, apparently, in the market. It's going to have an expansion, which is wonderful. More maps, more scenarios, all for the good. Maybe more gear, more tech. I don't know. I don't have any inside information about the what the expansion offers. But uh, I've loved all the, uh, the the stuff so far, with the exception of a couple scenarios, which are a bit meat grindery. But the variety is definitely there. And uh, Seal Team Flix has held up. And once again, it is the only game that matters. Just a
0: little bit more on that subway map which I find very interesting, is the fact that it doesn't introduce any new rules. By just the way it's laid out, it gives you that feel of fighting between two subway cars. There's not any, like, Mm. you know, in this scenario you're going to do this instead of that. There's nothing new. It's just the way that the doors and the layout of the map is. gives you that whole feel of being in the subway station. I thought they did a fantastic job with that.
1: Yeah, and, and sort of, we've kind of come full circle. So many games don't use the spatial aspect that they're given very well I, I i don't know if you disagree i personally feel that way about descent and imperial assault i don't feel that they use the spatiality very well at all the map is there just because it's there and you just end up counting squares but games like street masters and steel team Flex have shown me that you can do it with with you know very very large hex grids or very very large uh, square grids and still count movement spaces and not have to deal with the endless tedium of counting range and calculating things like that. So it can be done well, even though I still appreciate other games like Doom Rock, like uh, even the old uh, D&D tactical games like Ravenloft and uh, the the subsequent games in that series have done a very, very good job of distracting away into tiles, claustrophobia as well. But there's increasing room in my heart for both ways
0: of doing things, so long as it's done cleverly. Yeah, on on the Descent Imperial Assault thing, I thought it was just funny. Because I do the same thing every time I buy an expansion for that. I open up and I said, oh, look, new map tiles. They're orange now instead of blue. Hooray. <laughs> it just is, okay, what do I... I have Scythe down here. Guess what? I played Scythe. Who knew? I think I put it down here because we're supposed to be playing more Fenris. And some people just, you know, don't want to bring it in. So we want to talk about Fenris. But people are just not, you know, putting in the time that's needed, Mark. They're not holding up their end of the bargain walker. It's rough. It is rough. It's very unfortunate. All right, what's real here? Oh, well, Mystic Veil. Vale. I played Mystic Veil vale again. And I think it's gone into that ballpark of being too bloated for its own good. I think it's up to like 13. No, that's <laughs> not 13 expansions, but six or seven expansions. And I've just mixed them all together because the other... The other scenario is, you know, separating them after every game, shuffling them all together, the game's done, then separating them all again, and I I couldn't be bothered with that. But still, still was pretty good. They're interested in introducing different mechanisms every time. It's still fairly interesting, but it's, it's slowly getting a bloat. That's for sure.
1: Games like that, it's often difficult. You, you know, Ascension had the same problem. They they deal with it with their own way. You either shuffle them all together, which has its own problem. It's dilution and bloat, as you say, where you have to introduce a new mechanism for a card that might not ever show up, or they won't combo properly. The alternative is often just functionally too difficult, and having to sort things out. Yeah, deck builders have have been dealing with this challenge ever since really the inception of the single single market setup, and I haven't seen one do an incredibly good job of of solving it. Uh, usually, the ones that that I appreciate are just the ones that remain super, super, super tight and focused, like the realms games, where they don't really expand the size of the deck too, too much because they don't want to engage in that kind of a thing. But you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a lot of expansions, and you're really gonna expand things that way. You you really have to pick your poison, and unfortunately, bloat is one of them. I still haven't tried Mystic Veil. Really? Yeah,
0: I still haven't played it. Well, you liked uh, Custom Heroes a little bit. A little bit. A little bit, yeah,
1: yeah. So maybe... Well, they're very different games, though. They are there.
0: Well, you're still sliding translucent plastic into... So they're almost exactly the same. <laughs> I
1: did enjoy putting the, the the transparencies into the sleeves, so... At, at least that, that <laughs> mechanical element of playing the game I'll enjoy, probably. Like, yeah,
0: don't get me wrong. Like, that mechanical part is very interesting. Like, it's by, by far not one of the greatest games of all time, but... But they've used that mechanism of being able to customize your cards, and they've done some very interesting things with it.
1: Am I able to give any of my cards a hot dog, thereby reducing their combat value because one of their hands is now occupied?
0: Mm, Not that I've seen so far.
1: Okay, that sounds like an inferior game. Uh, It's so true. One new game I did get to play is a game called Vengeance. This is a game that was put up by Gordon Calleja at Mighty Boards uh, this year. And this is a game that I tried exclusively because of the theme. Because I'm very firmly of the opinion that the greatest movie ever made is Old Boy. Uh, The original one, of course. Not the travesty that was released in the American market. And Vengeance is very much about the scenario common in movies like that. There's a sort of kind of everyman who's been desperately wronged by criminals. And then they return and murder everybody. And in... Vengeance, you basically alternate between two kinds of rounds. You have the montage round, where you train up. Perhaps you're further wronged by the uh, gang or gangs that have that have done bad things to you. You acquire new skills, a couple of abstracted notions of gear. You heal up, which is very important. You have to heal up, because they're doing terrible things to you. And then you show up, and you play this dice game, and it's not really a combat experience. You know, it's got a board with little figures that you move around and kill, but it, it's mostly a dice game. It's about trying to use uh, certain combinations to, to to get what you need done and then scoring points based on that. And it's got this interesting sort of risk-reward system. You only score points based on how badly you get the snot kicked out of you during the earlier rounds. So you have to bring yourself just to the brink and then try to go and, and avenge yourself on the people who've done these, these terrible things to you. It's not what I would call a great game. It's okay. I found it reasonably diverting. It's got a number of problems. The player interaction is reasonably limited which is kind of okay if you keep the playing time brisk. The thematic integration remains very good throughout, even though mechanically there's no connection to it. Like, you deliberately choose what terrible things the gangs are doing to you, and some people might that uh, might find that a suspension of disbelief problem. I thought that it was fine. Uh, the art style is great, and it's consistently rendered. The minis are, are really good for, uh, for a company that's still very small. They put out a couple things that involve a very small amount of, of miniatures, And it's, you know, reasonably diverting. It's not going to set the world on fire. I'll probably play it another couple of times. Again, mostly because of the theme. I will say that they've paid a lot of attention to some of the details. Uh, Some of the solo scenarios and the missions involved there are kind of cute. Uh, For example, in one that I tried, the character is a a sort of 'er ne'er-do-well priest. And he seeks to avenge himself on, on the local gang that's running the local town. But he can't kill... The thugs, just the low-level thugs, because they're his parishioners who've been corrupted by the gang. So every time he kills one of them, he loses points, and if he kills more than three, he immediately loses the game. And so that set of constraints is both interesting to increase the challenge of a game like this and very thematically appropriate. So I like what they've done, a number of things like that. So it's uh, very much the kind, of, kind of game that I normally don't enjoy, namely one that you can only really enjoy on the, th- on the thematic elements. Uh, but that said, it's a reasonably decent package and a little cleverer than it needed to be in some aspects. But again, I wish things like player interaction were a little bit uh, a little bit better, and that the use of components were 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 more consistently good. But that was vengeance, and i will uh, I will follow up if I have a chance to try it again.
0: All right, my last game is Isle of Sky. It's been quite a while since I played it. and the only reason I want to bring it up is just the amount of game you get into the time it takes to play it. There's like a a bidding mechanism, there's tile placement, there's variety in every game. There's like about 20 different victory point tiles of which you're only going to play four every game, and every round you're scoring different ones. I just think it's an all-around great package, and there's an expansion out I definitely want to try, Isle of Sky. So now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. What do you have in the news for us, Walker? Well, I want to start off with it might be a discussion. I don't know, maybe you have no opinion or don't care. It's about Mississippi Queen. They're good. It's going to be reprinted, and the only thing I'm bringing up is that there's also restoration games. They're also bringing back Fireball Island and all of these other games, and the rise in IP games is on the up and up. And Fantasy Flight Games has pretty well just fallen into this, either doing extra editions or you know IP-related stuff you know, nothing original. This is the same trend that we've seen in Hollywood with movies. Now, are we going to be worried that this is going to be happening in board games? Are all we're going to see is new editions, reprints of old games, base games on IPs, things that are a sure sell and less or less originality coming out?
1: I'm not concerned about that at all. The number of new products and, and, and new titles that come out every year is staggering.
0: This is true, This is, but this has happened in Hollywood as well, right? It was a slow transition, not so slow in Hollywood, I guess, but a slow transition, and eventually we have what we have now. Either it's a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie. Take your pick.
1: Sure. And, I well, I've never really been a fan of Fantasy Flight even back in the day when they were not tied to their IPs. and uh, Well, not as tied to their IPs, because they were pretty much always tied to IPs. You know, back in the good old days where they would release a broken first edition, and then that, that had to be solved by the first expansion. But now all they ever do is, you know, a little bit of Game of Thrones, uh, a lot of Star Wars, and a little bit of Cthulhu. And none of that really does anything for me. And then that's fine. Like, I've never really been... Uh, part of their core audience, and I've always had more than enough stuff to keep me occupied. Otherwise, I mean, we're we're, we're still in a market where every everybody can start a Kickstarter and self-publish their first game with a, a bazillion components if they want to, and more and more people are doing that. I mean, maybe if the consolidation continues or accelerates in a tremendous pace and or there's some sort of Kickstarter crash, maybe then we might have something to be concerned about. But as far as Mississippi Queen in particular, I mean, last time we discussed this, I think, was when I brought up Raw, and you immediately said Raw is a, a, a piece of evidence in support of the theory that if a game is good enough, it will be reprinted. I have not played Mississippi Queen, but I know that it still has an audience. It's always had an audience for a very long time. And so the fact that it's being reprinted is probably just a sign of that. As far as Restoration Games is concerned, you know the less said about Rob Davio, the better. I, I don't think that Restoration Games is doing much of anything that's of interest. You know, even though some good old games get reprinted, there's always going to be nostalgic cash grabs of of some form or another. I'm not particularly worried about the health of the market. I mean, just look over the the, the games we played last week. Seal Team Flicks is by first time designers that is not based on any existing IP. Uh, Street Masters is clearly an homage to IP, but it is not a licensed game, and it was, you know, put out by relatively established newcomers. I realize that's a bit of a self-contradiction, but it was the first project of a new publishing house, so as to p- publish the designs of the Saddlers. Uh, you know, Sentinels of the Multiverse is, you know, now coming to a close after an arc of seven years of publishing games. And it was a company that was established so as to publish Sentinels of the Multiverse. So I, I don't really see any problem, uh, you know, any, any reason to, to fret about the health of the market by virtue of, of people going back and reprinting old games. All right. I guess we'll see. So Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Brees are at it again. They have another game starting with the word key. It's called Key Flow. I read the rules, and my response was a resounding eh seems to be Keyflower with a drafting element, basically, to, to, to simplify it tremendously. You don't have tiles anymore as you do in Keyflower. Now you have cards, and you don't auction for tiles anymore. You instead draft the cards. And just on a very, very simple level, if you ask me whether I would r- rather draft something or auction something, I generally would much rather auction something – Gone are the super interesting elements of the worker color determining the status of a tile, both for terms of activation and bidding. So it seems to have lost a number of things in translation. Despite the fact that the rulebook itself wants to emphasize its similarity to Keyflower, most of the changes seem to me, at least on the surface, to be not for the better. Anyway, it's currently up on Kickstarter now, if you're at all interested, for all the people that desperately want to get their key titles. I was sufficiently unimpressed. I wasn't very impressed with Keeper. I... Didn't like it much, and it immediately made me want to return to Keyflower. So I'll probably take a pass on Keyflow, but, uh, you know, if if you're inclined, go,
0: go check it out. So, I know we hate dexterity games. They're terrible. They're the worst. They are the worst. And I
1: certainly wasn't going to talk about the thing that you're about to talk about. New dexterity
0: game from Pretzel Games, because they make terrible dexterity games. The worst. They're so the ugly, they're and awful. they're badly constructed. And we hate them. Yeah, we hate them so much. This one is called Men at Work. And it looks equally terrible. And I will not play it, nor will I buy it. Certainly not. I will definitely not pre-order it the moment that I'm able to. So yes. Yeah, I mean Honestly, Minute Work, it looks amazing. These girders with you place workers on them, it looks fantastic. They even have like little hard hats and they, it looks just amazing and fun. I can't wait. We're
1: both huge, huge fans of junk art. I am a huge fan of Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. I'm less of a huge fan of the base fuck up I think the scenarios are uneven, but even even it was a delight. It was a delightful game and had beautiful components. So I'm very, very much looking forward to men at work and uh, seeing what Petzel Games has for us
0: next. Monolith Arena. It's from Portal Games, because Portal Games needs a two-player skirmish battle game like everybody else, apparently. Even though, you know, Nioshima Hex is a fantastic game, I guess they wanted to get on the big miniature... 1v1 skirmish-type battle game. So that's Monolith Arena from Portal Games. It's by the same designer of Nier Shima Hacks, so we'll see. And then this just in, uh, I need to play Root more, because, yeah, Root. And that's the news. (laughs) 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 And why it doesn't matter.
1: Some people have uh, shown up on the Guild and asked, you know, why is it that the news doesn't matter? Well, for the, first part, for, for the most part, the news mostly doesn't matter because it's about upcoming stuff that you could probably just equally pass on. But recently, I think Walker has been decided to uh, emphasize how little the news matters by making it his own stream of consciousness declarations on his thoughts. Next know,
0: week, look forward to Walker talking about how he likes sandwiches. Well, and... That's just it, right? This is stuff that is inter- interesting to me, so it's probably not interesting to anybody else. Like, we can go on and on about every single news story that's out there, but that would be at tedium. So this is just stuff. I agree. I (laughs) agree
1: that there are certain things that we could mention that we shouldn't mention because it is not relevant (laughs) and not particularly interesting. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, there you go. With that in mind, let's move on to our feature game. Our feature game is Battlecon. This is by Brad Talton of Level 99 Games, and it's a series of games that has been out since 2010. A little bit of a personal anecdote, because if Walker gets to share things that don't matter, I guess I do too. This is the uh, War of Indians, which was the first Battlecon title. It was the very first thing I ever pledged for on Kickstarter. I, re- I remember distinctly making the little print and play that they offered as part of the Kickstarter campaign, prototyping it and testing it out with uh, a friend of mine who then uh, abandoned us to go work for Blizzard and is now in California, and I still cry myself to sleep with an nice expiated tears every night. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever, you know, tried anything like that. Put out a, a, a print and play of a Kickstarter campaign, and then actually pledging for it. And since then, there has been so there's War of Indians, there was Devastation of Indians, Fate of Indians, Trial of Indians, and now there's going to be Wonders of Indians. And there's also going to be another thing, Battlecon Unleashed, on which is on Kickstarter right now. But more on all that later. Uh, so these are games that seek to emulate. One-on-one 2D fighting games. Now, spec- not even just one-on-one 2D fighting games in general, but specifically, it's been likened more to games like Blaze Blue than like other games like that. Which is to say, heavy amounts of character asymmetry. In case you didn't like the already heavy amount of character asymmetry built into fighting games generally, and a sort of uh, a notion that each character needs to be mastered in order to to to, to play it properly. So, in in the incredibly insular world of one-on-one 2D fighting games, there are very, very strong partisan affiliations. I'm not really a blaze-blue guy, I'm more of a King of Fighters guy, uh, but that's not to say that I don't appreciate the sort of uh, perspective that Battlecon brings to the genre. So, with that in mind, why don't you, Walker, summarize
0: what one does in a game of Battlecon? Will do. So, in Battlecon, first you're going to do is pick any number of over 80 characters there are now, and every character comes with a base set of cards that are the same for every single of these 80 characters, and then they're unique cards. And during the game, you're going to play one of each of these, even though there's a a unique regular card as well. But anyway, it takes two cards to form an attack. So you place your your stand-ups on the board, and then you pick two of the cards, which might as well be at random, because you have no idea what your opponent's going to play, and then you reveal them. And then there's a priority, and you better win, because if you lose priority, you're going to get hit. And if you're hit, then you're stunned, and your attack doesn't go off. But that's even if you're in range. Maybe you're out of range, and it doesn't matter anyway. All this leads to building up some focus so you can do your special ability. And when that comes around, hey, you might be out of range as well, or you might be stunned, so that doesn't come off either. But you've seen that the guy has built up his focus, so you know that the special ability is coming. So it doesn't go off, and now it's out of your hand forever. You don't get to do it. And that's BattleCon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, 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 sorry, sorry. Before, let, let, let's just evaluate
1: your claims on the face of them, right? So you say that the attack that you put out doesn't matter, it might as well no. be at random. No, 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 no,
0: no, no. Let, 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 Let's let's stick to what you said here, right? No, no, this is all in jest. Like, we've talked about this before. It's... No, but I just like to point out that your jest is, is,
1: even insofar as it's a veiled, jokey critique, it's inconsistent on its face, because... The first thing you say is that your attacks don't matter, and then you, in order to demonstrate how your attacks don't matter, you point out that your opponent knows what you're about to do and is thereby able to counter
0: what you're able to do. Therefore, nothing you does matter. Well, that was matters. only for the special ability because you have to build up focus equal to your life. So when you see your opponent has a whole bunch of focus and they're and they're low on on health, you, you sort of know that the, that their big finisher might be coming. So you know. Anyway, that being said, that was all in jest because in reality. Uh they have great reference cards that tell you what each character does, and it's what we talked about It's an anticipation of what your of what your opponent's going to do. It's seeing what range you're at at the beginning of the turn. It's seen because at the beginning of the game, you discard four of your cards, like two of each set, and so you know what your opponent doesn't have as a hand, what he hasn't played already, and it's just sort of trying what he or she hasn't to, what he or she hasn't played already. And so it's anticipating what uh, what they're going to play and doing it that way.
1: So let's talk about this anticipation aspect because I think there's a lot to be a lot to unpack here. But one of them is indeed the anticipation aspect because there's another game that seeks to emulate one-on-one fighting games that relies almost exclusively on this anticipation aspect, and that's Yomi. Have you ever played Yomi? I have not played Yomi either. So Yomi is in the universe of elaborated rock-paper-scissors, much, 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 much closer to just rock, paper, scissors. There are attacks, which beat throws. There are throws that beat blocks, and there are blocks that beat attacks. And that's, more or less it. You got a random hand of cards, you play something face down, they're both revealed and, you know, everything works in that rock, paper, scissors way. And, you know, there's more to Yomi, and I realize that Yomi has its fans, but one of the things that I didn't really enjoy much about Yomi is really it is just about that anticipatory element. There's precious little else you can do to sort of leverage a situation where you're not able to anticipate what what someone else is doing and couple that with a random card throughput. I was never in a position where I really felt like I had much control. Battlecon, on the other hand, it's, first of all, it's not just a simple tripartite. There's, there's more of a, it, there are five attacks and they kind of interact with each other in a variety of ways. So a drive or a strike will beat a shot. A shot will beat a burst or a grasp. A grasp will beat a drive or a strike. Stuff like that. And much of this actually is precisely, as you say, about range. The, the term in, in competitive fighting games is about playing footsie and hit confirm, about being able to make sure that you're able to, to get in range to, to, to do what you're trying to do. And Battlecon, I think, does a great, great job of doing that, because, as you say, you have a reference card that details what the opponent's able to do, and actually, when you take a step back, and this is one of the things that Battlecon, I think, is not particularly good at doing, it, it doesn't really encourage you in a lot of ways to take that step back uh, at least for me, to consider what's going on. If you... I, I, would, have, I would have liked it in some of the tutorials if they said, alright, look at your opponent's discard pile because, as you say, in the discard pile there are going to be two sets of attacks that are out. And then look at the reference card and just do the combinatorics and realize there's only one of three styles that an opponent can be playing. Because that's all that's left. Everything else is, is locked away in a discard pile. So they can play one of three styles. So go and take the five seconds necessary on the summary card to read what those three styles do. Just remind yourself, what are the parameters going on? And then look at the range and say, okay, well, what are they in range to do? What they might might be willing to do that? And that's when really the depth starts to reveal itself and starts to and starts to go further. Why is it that... I know why I'm not able to do this, at least... It's, it's mostly because I'm intellectually lazy. Uh, but as a relatively new new player uh, who has complained that, that everything he did didn't matter, uh, w- was it the case that you thought that this effort was impossible, or you just weren't inclined to do it?
0: I think it's it might be just this. We cycle through games. I have multiple reasons. Maybe we cycle through too many games. I don't want to put in the effort to learn this game that much. So maybe I don't want to learn every character, because every character is so different. Maybe I don't want to, you know... Invest that much time into this game. It could be because it is emulating a fighting game, which is supposed to be quick, fast action. You have no idea what your opponent's doing. You just have to quickly react and do what you can. Maybe you know you just want to keep simulating that feel of the game. And you don't play one-on-one fighters, do you? No. Well, this is this has taught me. Like I have a list of an, of anticipation games here that I do enjoy. Over the past three months, I've played quite a few uh, fighting games, and I found that. They are just totally not my thing. I I, I have some uh, ways to. I'm going to compare this to Sacra Arms a little bit later, but it, I'm biased in this in this review just because I've just learned that these this is just not my thing. Sure. So like games like Game of Thrones, where you're anticipating what battle card they're going to play, or Kemet, same sort of thing. You're anticipating which battle cards they're going to play and rectifying that way. Or have you ever played Raptor? I have Raptors very much. You know, you can see what they've already played. You're anticipating, you're trying to outplay your opponent. I like all of those games. I have nothing wrong with that. So, I think it's just this back and forth. Especially with uh, Battlecon. Because in Sakura Arms, you have other things to do. You're manipulating your hand. You're manipulating the pedals on the board. Like, for range. I think range in Sakura Arms is uh, more important than it is in Battlecon. In my opinion. So... In these games where there's more to do than just play the cards, I'm enjoying it a little bit more, but where it's just the anticipation, like you said, it's got a little bit more to do with range of the cards. It's not just anticipation, but it is just the, what comes down to card choice at the end. So hmm. I, th- I'm, I think I'm enjoying the other games a bit more, but Battlecon definitely was not not in my uh, wheelhouse.
1: So I would definitely not recommend Yomi then, because as I say, it's almost pure rock, paper, scissors. It's definitely purer than, than Battlecon is. It's interesting you mentioned Sakura Arms, because Sakura Arms and Battlecon are very, very similar, both in terms of what they're seeking to emulate, and I think both in terms of their approach to complicating the decision space in a good way, in terms of giving you more parameters to deal with and more levers to pull. The salient difference between Battlecon and Sakura Arms, I think, in terms of the play experience, is the fact that play is alternating in Sakura Arms and simultaneous in Battlecon. Because in Sakura Arms, it can be the case... That based on what my opponent has done at the start of my turn, I'm not going to be able to get within range. Or I'm going to be stuck at a suboptimal range for some period of time. And I'm going to have to spend some time digging myself out of that hole. And structurally speaking, that could be the exact same game state that exists in Battlecon. The difference is that in Battlecon, if you're not conscious of what's going on, all that you know is that round by round, things get get revealed and your attacks miss. Because in Sacker Arms, if you're not within range, you don't play the attack. And nothing happens. And so you know that nothing is going to happen. Whereas in Battlecon, sometimes you either take a calculated risk, thinking, well, it's not likely that they're going to do this thing, but if they do, I really want to whap them one good. Or you might expect a, a certain effect to go off, and it doesn't because it was preempted by something else. And so that sensation of not knowing at the time that when the cards are revealed can be intensely frustrating, and I completely respect the fact that some people don't appreciate it. Have I, does that make yeah, sense? no, that's all all make sense to me. And I think, just just to further address some of Walker's misgivings, uh, just to summarize them, the two things that I have listed here for two of the biggest obstacles to enjoying Battlecon is number one is if you're easily frustrated, Battlecon can be an intensely frustrating experience. Whether or not your opponent is much more skilled than you are. If it's the case that several of your attacks in a row don't connect and don't land, it can be it can be very easy to feel that the game is stacked against you. If you spend 3 consecutive rounds, 3 or 4 consecutive rounds where none of your attacks work and lots of characters work that way where you can expect not to hit anybody for that either because you were stunned or because you're out of range or because of whatever, then it can be intensely frustrating and As somebody who's really bad at Battlecon, I'm really bad at Battlecon. I am super bad at Battlecon. I've been playing it for eight years. I'm really bad at Battlecon. It's one of the few games where I'm able to consistently lose and consistently have my attacks thwarted and I don't get frustrated, in part because, I guess by help in part because I'm used to it, but in part because I love just manipulating the levers and seeing how and why my opponents have outsmarted me. The second thing, though, that I, I, I have listed here is that it's really going to test your expectations of of accessibility. Because Battlecon has a relatively approachable rule set. It's not the simplest game in the world, but it's not going to take you a half hour to explain the rules. But every character has levels of understanding in order to maximize your ability to use them. And on top of that, every character you fight against has levels of understanding that you need to know in order to fight against them. And so, given those, there's a lot of ability to feel overwhelmed, or that things are random because you're unable to process all the data that's going on, or you're not able to appreciate the follow-on
0: effects of everything that you're doing. Let's pause there just for a moment and talk more about the characters. So I that's... hit pause in the recording. No, don't hit no? pause. No. Okay. Did you Did you hit pause?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't hit. I don't. I don't know how this works. Okay, sweet.
0: I shout into the can, Walker. That's all I do. Sweet. All right. So about the characters, the what they do. Are you listening, God? What they do, <laughs> what they do. With just cards and a few tokens to make all of these characters so different is amazing. And I think it is one reason why, even though I dislike Battlecon, why I will play it a few more times. Because this is why I enjoy playing new games all the time. Just to see how they manipulate mechanics. And the way that, like I said, they do this with just, you know, was it eight unique cards... Whatever it is, it's only like eight unique cards, and either some of them have tokens, or some have a few extra cards. It's all just some unique little quirky thing they throw in with every character that makes them completely different than the rest, yet still relatively balanced with each other, and I think that's a fantastic part of this game. 80 characters. 80.
1: More than 80, yeah. So, let let me try to characterize it this way, because... There are three levels of play, as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of people who talk about Battlecon don't really address it in in these ways. I think mostly because the people who talk about Battlecon are the enthusiasts, and Battlecon can very much become almost like a lifestyle game. You know, the people who really have sought to master their individual character, and who have really mastered enough other characters so that, you know, they know the setups, they know the matchups, they're able to really see things boiled down to their essentials. So there's the first level of play, where you're just doing everything as a one-off. Every new round is a new little tactical puzzle where the only bits that you know how to manipulate are your own attacks. And you just try to figure, well, this seems like it might work based on how things are now. Let's see how this works. And you put out the attack and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And based on how you approach... You know, your, your your frustration threshold and your demands of accessibility, this may work for you. I've had a lot of success. Let, let me make it clear. For a game that has such a high skill threshold, I've had a lot of success introducing battleton to new players who play like monkeys and still really enjoy it because, again, the combination of the attacks is so interesting and just watching how things play out and watching the, the way that every character is unique and, and just understanding the, the, the dynamics of the different attacks and board position and all the, how they interact with all, all of each other. That's really, really satisfying. Even when and sometimes especially when your face is being punched in. And I'd like to stress despite the fact that I've been I haven't been playing Battlecon a huge amount because two player games are kind of hard to get to the table sometimes especially when and if Walker doesn't like them. But I'm still at that first level of just trying to one off everything a lot of the time. Simply because I like variety, and so I tend to try lots of different characters, even when I should probably buckle down and, and really start to appreciate a single character's depth. Not that it's hard work. It, it's, still enjo- it's really enjoyable getting this nuance, but it's something that I haven't really done because the cast is so huge, and I'd like to, you know, I'd like to try as many of them as possible. The second level of mastery of Battlecon, and these are of course very crude categories, is when you know your own fighter cold. When you know your own abilities of the person you're playing and you really, really know how to how to exercise them. I'm at that level with maybe one and a half characters, basically. There are a couple characters that I kind of sort of know well enough that I'm able to get them to work. And for context, when I wasn't playing as one of those characters, Walker would pants me real hard. He took a liking to Burgundy 12 and it really suited his playstyle, and Walker every time we played, would get to learn a little bit more of the nuance. And meanwhile, I was like, I haven't tried this character, and they seem cool, and he would pants me again. And Then finally I decided, hey, let's break out Kadhaf, the character that I've been playing since the beginning. And sure enough, that was when I was finally able to beat him. So once you know your own fighter and how they work, that really can elevate your game. And then you start thinking about, well, this is what I'll do next round, But next, uh, but the following round after that, and the round after that, and the round after that. And then there's knowing your opponent's character as well. Once This is kind of what I would identify as the third level, when you know your own character backwards and forwards and you know the other character backwards and forwards, where you're really able to understand all the parameters of what both the fighters can do. And then, in a funny way, you kind of circle back around so it's slightly more of a rock-paper-scissors situation, but still really satisfying because of these other tactical elements. And I've once or twice played at that third level, back when, shortly after Devastation of Indians, which was the second major set was released, I got pretty good at uh, at one character, and I would play against a, a regular opponent who was good, pretty good at their character, and I kind of got a sense of what was going on, and those were great matches. But, I'd still like to emphasize, I still enjoy playing at level one, where I'm just one-offing everything. A lot of people don't, and a lot of people won't, and a lot of people never will. And a lot of people will never be inclined to put in the effort or the time to get to levels two or three, or to really improve their game. And for them, BattleCon is a game they should avoid. Absolutely, 100%. And so, there are a lot of games that I adore that are not for everybody, and BattleCon is absolutely one of them. I mean, to start off, you're talking about one-on-one competitive games, which a lot of people don't like to do anyway, but even within that, BattleCon, I think the barrier to entry is, is low, but the barrier to skill is relatively high. And so I can completely understand why a number of people don't take to it.
0: So we haven't really talked about exactly how the game works. We talked about how you play the two cards and how, let's just talk about how they have a list of the stats on both sides, one on the left, one on the right, and they sort of match up. And you get to add all these stats together, I think is a great mechanism. And if they have minuses, then it'll either reduce your priority or reduce your range. And the art on the cards are amazing. The generic cards are like all these technical drawings of how you know moves are done, and I think that looks really cool. And then the unique cards are even better. It's like all original artwork all looks great, really like the art in the game.
1: so the art has actually been one of the one of the ways in which the the series has evolved. The first set War of Indians had a roster of about half a dozen different artists, and the art style was inconsistent across uh, not only were the you know not only were the artists clearly different, but they had radically different art styles to begin with. And there wasn't really any art on the bases, on the the base attacks, those kind of vaguely technical drawings you allude to weren't there. And over the years, things have really been consolidating, uh, harmonizing, and the art style has really become more consistent. There's one person who does all the character portraits, Uh, that's a very talented artist whose name is Noko and then there's... Uh, Fabio Fontes, who does everything else. And as a result of that, they've really been able to make sure that f- across all these 80 characters is a visual continuity. They only finally... Uh, uh Redid all the war of Indian stuff. Surprisingly, late in the cycle of, of, of the series, it was several years after devastation of Indians that they finally bothered to to get things all together. There's other ways in which the series has evolved in occasionally unsatisfying ways, and I'll get to that later. But I'll let you finish your thought about some of the other technical details about how Battlecon works.
0: Sure. So after you uh, play the two cards, then you decide uh, who has priority after you've you know plus and minus the, off the the two cards. And then whoever has priority gets to take their turn. There's also... Every turn is called a beat. There's also, you know, beginning of beat uh, actions, after beat actions, before activating actions. And then you just... Then you find out, after you've just done all of those, you've just found out who's activating. You see if their attack is in range. If their attack is in range, you add up how much power they have, depending on what special ability they used, and that's how much damage they're doing. If the opponent takes any damage they're going to be stunned, unless they have something on their card that is called Stun Block. And you have to have Stun Block up to the amount of damage that was done. It doesn't block any of the damage, but it does stop you from being stunned. So if you took any damage at all, you're stunned, and any uh, any attacks you have don't go off. But if you're out of range or you had Stun Block, then you will, you know, do your attack back. You'll check and see if you're in range, you'll add up your power, and you'll do damage back. And not that I want to go into too many details
1: or get into a rules explanation, but that really emphasizes the extent to which Battlecon sometimes gets away from rock, paper, scissors in in what I think is a good way. You don't have to uh, necessarily outthink your opponent along a single axis. It's not just that every dash will beat every instance of burst, because there are roughly three ways that you can counter someone's attack and this is, the, the, even this is being a very, very blunt distillation of a different ways, you can either make sure that you're out of range when they attack, you can either hit them first and make sure that they're stunned, or you can make sure that you have enough stun guard and enough soak that they may hit you first, but when you hit them back, it will be much more effective and possibly more damaging overall. And on top of that, then there are all the effects that trigger regardless of whether or not you hit first or second. And that's one of the reasons why the round structure is a little bit Cumbersome on on first appearance because there are start of beat effects and if you have a start of beat effect you will always trigger it same thing with end beat effects but then there are the before and after activating effects and those will get skipped if you're stunned so you have to you know take that into account and that is one of the ways in which the information opacity can really hit new players because you, you have to emphasize like oh yeah this thing that on my card I still get to do even though you stunned me because it's an end of beat effect and and or I want to do this before activating thing I get to do this like well no I stunned you so you just have to sit there and get hit which is not particularly satisfying so I do think that this additional level of detail and nuance pays off both in terms of character asymmetry and in terms of different effects and and ways to, to, to pull the different levers to change the game state but it can be intimidating on, on first blush. So a number of other things have been changing over the years in BattleCon. So just to give a a brief summary, because Walker is relatively new to the series, Uh, Burst, which is one of the five fundamental attacks of the series, changed rather fundamentally. It got significantly boosted it was very very narrow for a while and so they, they made it a little bit better and then in the most recent set trials of indians they changed one of the original base attacks dash to dodge and that now works entirely differently they both have the same effect they both serve to basically let you roll out of danger and and kind of cancel whatever attack that someone was was uh, going to issue to you if you do it properly but they've they've changed it significantly there's been by my count, several different versions of Force. Force powers either little boosts at the start of each round or your finisher, which Walker alluded to earlier. And Force has been done many different ways, many different times. Uh, There's also been some modes they introduced in earlier sets that now have been mostly obsoleted. So the rule set has been evolving constantly. And I I, I wanted to to, to really spend some time talking about this because really I think it's, it's sort of the midway between the ideal way to do iterations and the terrible way to do iterations. The ideal way to do iterations, either in terms of rules, elements, or components, is the way that the people at Chip Theory Games do it. For all the crap that I give them about their component choices, they do stand behind their products, and every time they update something, they make the new stuff available at cost or sometimes free for the consumers. The other end of the extreme is indeed... Serlin Games, who did Yomi and a number of other products. Every time they come up with a new release, with a new rules tweak, with a new evolution, their response is always the same. Buy the new edition or be happy with what you've got. So there's no effort whatsoever to uh, satisfy prior uh, uh, customers. Past... Uh, typically, one print run of an upgrade pack where the components often don't match the previous components. So there's there's in the recent years there's been some token efforts to to accommodate, but really uh, it hasn't been overall very successful. Battlecoms kind of in the middle. They'll always give you the newest stuff with the newest set with entirely new stuff. So they don't ask you to rebuy the earlier edition. They ask you to buy the new edition with the new fighters and the new elements and everything, and that is going to bring your components up up to uh, uh, up to the current standard. And that's where we come to. The current Kickstarter, the current Kickstarter is for what they call Battlecon Unleashed, and this is it. it kind of give me uh, chills of recognition of, of deja vu from the Oblivion uh, Kickstarter for, for Sentinels of the Multiverse because they're going to have one huge box to hold everything. So I'm looking forward to two years of delays and endless, endless Chinese New Year and 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 terribleness. I, I have a little bit more faith here because I've seen Brad Talton, the designer and publisher of Battlecon mock up different boxes over the years this is not some recent whim that he's come up with he's he's done his due diligence He's prototyped, so one hopes it'll work out okay and in the process all the old characters are going to get balance tweaks which is great and they're all going to be brought up to the same component standards of the newest set namely trials of indians and what this means is a tuck box for every character yay so you can put all the little tokens right in there and it also means they're going to be printing out bases for every single character. The way it used to work was there was four sets of bases because there were some four player modes and then you take a base and then you match it up with the unique components of a given fighter. They're not going to do that anymore. Now there's going to be a copy of every base for every fighter. We're talking about hundreds of cards here just for easing setup, which seems a little bit nuts to me. But what do I know? A lot of people seem to be very happy about it. So, yay for that. And so this is gonna be this is gonna be it. This is gonna be done. This is gonna be the definitive version. This is gonna be the last cycle. Everything is gonna be brought up to date. Everyone is now gonna work with the newest force rules. Everyone's gonna have the newest dodge and do away with dash. Everyone's gonna have the proper burst, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, part of me is happy that they're that they're bringing it up to up to code, as it were. Part of me is a little disappointed at the sheer number of changes. It's one of those things where you can't have it both ways. And so, if you're a new player, this is this is an opportunity for Walker's favorite form of Kickstarter pledge—the one where they they give you everything that's ever been published ever, uh, albeit at a considerable cost, because we are talking about several different sets of games. And for people who have been in it since the beginning, they're they're you know trying to make sure that they go out with a bang. And so that's what's going on on Kickstarter now. One minor note. Is that contrary to a lot of other fighting games and a lot, even a lot of other games based on fighting games? Uh, the racial and gender balance is pretty good in terms of the cast. It's not perfect. Uh, some of the uh, some of the women are clearly presented as sex objects, but I gotta say, if you compare it to say any Street Fighter art or a lot of the other art for a lot of other fighting games, it's definitely heads and shoulders above the, the, the crowd. And the designer has been uh, relatively concerned about maintaining gender parity and inserting characters exclusively to redress uh, racial balance and things like that. So it's a reasonably diverse cast, and uh, I think, you know, give credit where credit is due, especially since, uh, as I've commented on Street Masters, to a certain extent, and Yomi definitely, those games can get a little boob-heavy. So I do appreciate the fact that in BattleCon they're they're slightly better than the average.
0: The only last thing I have to say is that if you are introducing new people to this game and you want to make sure you have, you know, hands up on them, you just have to look at what their speciality of their of their character is and make sure you just omit those particular base cards out of their deck, and that way you'll have a much better chance at beating them.
1: It is possible that Walker is alluding to a game where I accidentally forgot to give him a drive card and so uh, his character was unable to close for much
0: of the match. I'm sure it was completely by accident. <sighs> And that is a game that is called Battlecon. Now, I, actually, I didn't want to finish right there. I wanted I, the one thing I wanted to ask was, like, if people have played other games, what other games? Like, if what would make them like this game? What other games are like it? So, if they've played these games, they might also like Battlecon. Well,
1: as I've said, it, it, its closest competitor, I think, consists of a couple of games we've already mentioned, namely Yomi and Sakura Arms. I think that it's similar to Yomi in that they're both seek to emulate certain kinds of fighting games and they both have at their core, a kind of rock, paper, scissors, anticipatory mechanism. They both have simultaneous play. And there are a number of things you can do with your play to screw up your, your opponent's play. And and part of doing well is doing precisely that. All right. I prefer BattleCon because it's more elaborated. And we talked about Sakura arms and the differences there. Uh, Honestly, uh, I think that, that uh, Sakura arms and BattleCon are two very excellent iterations of the, you know, sort of, Card dueling battling genre, although in, to my mind the king of that is still very much Blue Moon. But Blue Moon is very very different. It's it's you know a Euro auction game rather than a more of a fighty game. So those are those are the kind of games that I would immediately situate it with. All right, that
0: is Battle Con. Now on to the topic of the day, which is catch up mechanics. What do we mean by catch up mechanics, Walker? Yes, what, Mark. What do we mean by catch up mechanics? Well, what I would say would be. Uh, mechanisms in the game or things that happen throughout the game that aid someone that is in last place or people that are behind to uh, make the game more interesting for them or to make the end of the game more exciting and intense.
1: Yeah, because you don't want people to check out. The way the way that I identified is that catch-up mechanisms exist because the catch-up mechanisms exist because we want everyone to be theoretically in contentions at all times, even at the end. That is definitely a a sort of baseline desire. It's not necessarily the overriding desire because that can introduce problems in and of itself, and we'll talk a little bit about that over the course of the discussion. But, you know, if if you're entering the last half of the game or even the last third of the game and it's clear that some number of players have no possibility of winning, you don't have to be hyper-competitive to think that maybe the game is telling you that you have permission to sort of zone out and not take it seriously anymore.
0: I suppose. I, I don't think there should be such a thing in games. I also have here that in some cases it might also be just a balance issue that that during playtesting it was seen that some people get too far ahead and so they introduce these mechanisms in order to balance out you know problems in the game that they had.
1: You mean that the catch-up mechanism exists as a backstop for the fact that they're unable to properly balance the rest of the game? Exactly. I see. Interesting. Are there any designs where you think that happens?
0: Well, they're playing Power Grid. They found that some people were getting too far ahead, so they said, "Well, let's make you know the winner bid." First and yeah, the so loser, you know, get their resources first. I-, I, I do think
1: we have to talk about power grid. Power grid. When you talk about catch up mechanics, you have to talk about power grid because power grid, in many many ways and in several stages of the round, aggressively penalizes whoever is quote unquote winning, and that is one of the you know the, the most striking elements of playing power grid. What what is your impression of how it functions in a game like that?
0: I, I, like I said, I don't like it at all, ever. Like I said, I, sometimes I feel as though, I think, if someone is doing well, and they're sort of penalized for doing that, it sort of negates the, you know, why would you want to do well when when you're only going to get penalized for it. Now, that being said, there are some games, I should have put examples for this, but there are some games... You should have, yeah. Where, well, the rest of everything else is just actual games and okay. actual things. Okay. But anyway, this just this other tangent I thought of earlier. There's, there are some games where you manipulate that scoring. I can't come up with any in my hand. But there are some games where the scoring threshold is usually very close. So it's not very unbalancing. And you sort of manipulate it in a way. Oh, I'm going to come last this turn so I will get these advantages. And so there's some very good designs that do it that way because it's, you know, it's even throughout the game. So I will say this.
1: I have seen many gamers, I don't think this is something you do often, but I think it's something you've done on occasion, where if it's very, very clear they have no chance at contention, they start to check out. And that doesn't do wonders for the game state, and it doesn't do wonder for the social situation. Nobody wants to look around the table and see that one or more of the players is obviously not feeling it and is not engaged. That's just bad. It's a bad social situation, it's a bad game state. And I think one of the reasons why catch-up mechanisms exist, I'm not going to defend them in all instances. I, I think I'm almost as down on them as you are. But the motivation is indeed to make sure that everyone has at least the perception that they are competitive right until the end because that helps to keep people engaged. Yeah, but doesn't that go into like designing the game in the first place? Not necessarily, because there are lots of really well-designed games where the better player is going to win 100% of the time, and sometimes with experience. This is true of light games, this is true of heavier games. Antica 2 is a game where experience is going to triumph 95% of the time. Maybe not that much. I I shouldn't give a number to it. The overwhelming proportion of the time. But it's accessible, it's fun, it's beautiful, it's it's fast-moving. But it is nonetheless a valid criticism that you know, the, the experienced player is going to trounce the newbies all the time. It's still going to be a fun game, but it's a little bit of a downside. It's a little bit of a problem of introducing the game to new people. The same is true of lots of splatter games. The same is true of games like Battlecon, where, the, where if I'm playing against a more experienced player, they're going to be able to block me at every turn. And when there's no catch-up mechanism, like in splatter games, like in Food Chain Magnate, and someone is just... Tabling everybody and dominating the board because of either superior experience or what have you, it can be a problem. That there's absolutely nothing in the system to give anyone else a leg up to help them feel like they might become competitive, even if that feeling is illusory.
0: All right, what are some? We've got some examples here. Let's... So these catch-up uh, mechanics can usually only happen in games where the score is being tracked constantly. Now there are other there are other ways for catch-up things to work, like in in just. Uh, like, social obligation type thing. Like, if it's a combat game and someone is being pounded constantly, you usually leave that person alone. And that allows them to catch up. Or if it's a trading game, uh, where you trade resources, or you, uh, like Catan, say, and there's someone that's losing, you're more opt to trade with them as opposed to trading with the person that wins. So there's sometimes it's just a social obligation. And then there are other ways they can do it, is... Any game that has a stacking mechanism or a jumping mechanism. Like in Great Western Trail, where no two trains can be in the same space, so the person that's behind can jump over and get ahead faster because they're behind. Or in uh, Castles of Burgundy, there's the turn mechanism. and As you move up, you will be stacked on top. So even though that other person got there first because you came from behind, you're now on the top and now you're going to go before them. Or the honor system in Rising Sun. Or the honor system in Rising Sun.
1: Yeah, I I do like it when games... I think it serves two benefits. One of them is, indeed, it very organically serves as a catch-up mechanism because they can jump ahead of the earlier players. It also prevents ties, and ties are often very unsatisfying. So that's two unsatisfying things you get for the price of one. There's a very strange game that I really, really should introduce you to called Bushido Way of the Warrior, Which is, it's so bizarre in any number of ways. But one of the things that it has is precisely that, that you can never be tied for score. There are two different kinds of points, you're never allowed to be tied. And what that does is it really changes the parameters of how you want to score and when, because sometimes even a single point can now sometimes be worth three or four if people are stacked up in the right way. I'd never really thought of that as a catch-up mechanism, but you're absolutely right. It is a catch-up mechanism, and it's a really simple, elegant one to boot. And I really do, I've yet to encounter it in an unsatisfying way.
0: All right. So the first one I didn't write down. But how about the game we just talked about in uh, in Battlecon? Uh, when you get down to a certain health, you start getting more focus tokens. So that could be a way to improve your, you know, ability to fight, your ability to do damage. So you're getting more wounded. Now you can do more powerful things.
1: That's the other way that I. That's the other time when I really appreciate a catch-up mechanism because it can serve as a game accelerant. I actually really like game accelerants because they, they help feel can, help contribute to a game feeling like it has an arc that we're, that we're entering a new more intense or deadly stage. So yeah, when you're at seven or fewer life instead of getting one force at the end of the turn of Battlecon you get two. And it's kind of sort of a catch-up mechanism, but it's also just a game accelerant. The same is true of uh, Imperial 2030. One of the innovations that 2030 introduced to the base game of Imperial is the weaker a nation is, the cheaper it is to force them along the rondel faster. And so what it did was it gave weaker more less bankable powers, a little bit more uh, nimbleness and a little bit more flexibility, and so it made them more appealing in that way. That's not that's less of a catch-up mechanism and more of a catch-up mechanism for the play- the powers themselves rather than the players, but it still serves the same effect, and I really appreciate it when the game does it like that, too. All right, next on the list I have
0: Kemet. Whoever is in last place in Kemet gets to decide the turn order.
1: Yeah, it's I find it really blunt in Kemet and not particularly satisfying. That's one of those catch-up mechanisms where, well, if you're in last place, you get all the power. If you're in second to la- last place, you get nothing. Exactly. And turn order is so consequential there. Again, it's like power grid. As, as I was about to say, I really don't like it when it's really blunt, it's really obvious, and I also really, really hate it when it, the effect is so pronounced that you might spend
0: a non-trivial amount of the game thinking, how can I be in last place now? How can I... Well, that's what I mean. And Kevin, you can almost swing it because sometimes it's very close near the end. And you can just you know let all those shrines go at the end because you know next turn you're gonna be you're gonna be able to you know nominate the turn order and be able to take them all back. And so maybe in, I think it's still too harsh, but maybe that's one of the cases where you manipulate the, that mechanic to your favor. I don't like it when games give me strong incentives
1: not to score points because I would rather take advantage of the. The Benny, the the catch-up mechanism. In fact, uh, we didn't talk about it the week we played it, but we've played Aristea once. Uh, We played it once, and it has the same thing. Whoever is in last place, nominally, gets to decide where the scoring zone is. And that can be huge. And when we played, I was in a position where I could either score some points this round, and then you would be in charge of where the scoring zone was in the, 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 the final round. Or I could deliberately not score any points and throw it to you, and as a result, capitalize on my, on my catch-up mechanism and be able to determine where the scoring was in the final, in the final round. And I, it's a legitimate game design element. I'm not going to say that the game designer should never do it. It's just not to my taste. There, it, it breaks thematic immersion to an extent, and it, feels like I'm, it, it, it just feels
0: dirty somehow. All right, then there's Archipelago where the losers can completely tank the game at the end if they're not winning. Ugh. You're right. I guess that is kind of a catch-up
1: mechanism. It's a terrible one.
0: It is terrible. It's super
1: degenerate. But <laughs> Yeah, that that's an example of... That's kind of a, a, a synthesis of, of the type of game we talked about before, where it's really about, for lack of a better term, table talk and diplomacy, where the winners have to try to convince the losers that they, it is in their interest for the game to continue, which is also a kind of degenerate uh, table state that I don't really enjoy.
0: And actually, that reminded me of the one Mechanis Bur- Mechanis Burgo. Yes. Mechanis Burgo, where the cards are introduced on the side later in the game, and you can forego all the regular victory point conditions and go for these other ones f- for the people that are, are lagging behind. Well, that was... The the specific scenario
1: that arose in our playing was that there there's a deck of special victory, victory conditions that sometimes relate to victory points and sometimes not. But it's certainly not just as blunt as whoever has the most points. The one that came up, by chance, happened to be the one where you can declare yourself to be an enemy to the entire city and go off and, and, and try to pound everybody. But what it does is it encourages you to stay flexible and, and realize that even if you don't necessarily have the most points, you might be able to leverage your assets to go and do something else based on how these special victories come up. And in Mechanism I think it works reasonably well. In a game that is often not particularly mechanic, mechanically sophisticated or not particularly, shall we say, elegant at all, it is a reasonably simple way of making sure that everyone knows that they need to be able to be prepared to take advantage of opportunities as they show up. And I guess at the end of the day, that's what Catch-Up Mechanism is are just ways of encouraging people at their best ways of encouraging people to keep their eyes open for the opportunities that might arise later even though they
0: may not be winning now these is this is all bringing up other games that are even on my list how about root now that that the the vagabond can team up with the person in the lowest with the lowest victory points and then suddenly you know start assisting them and they can win together
1: I've, I've actually you know now that you mentioned I've never been in a game of root where that happened No, but that is definitely in my opinion a catch-up mechanism. I don't know that I've ever it's ever influenced my player and I've certainly never heard anyone else invoke that but you're right it, it could serve to, to do that
0: And then I've already talked about Isle of Sky earlier in Isle of Sky, uh, you get an income at the beginning of every turn and then later on in the game you get money based on how many people are ahead of you on the scoring track.
1: Yeah, stuff like that when it's subtle, when it's just a little thing, uh, you know, as subtle often as the differing amount of money you get based on initial turn order, just a little bit of extra income here and there, there I definitely don't mind it, especially if you don't feel like you're being penalized for being in first, and or, as I say, you're never really in a position where you'd rather be in last place by virtue of how crippling the turn order advantage
0: is. Alright, I'm taking all these, I'm just going to keep going on my list. And go for it, on. man, go for it. So have you read the Starfares of contend rulebook again? Yes. So they have a catch-up mechanism as well, where they allow players below a certain number of victory points to draw free random charity resources.
1: That's usually, if anything, that's kind of the opposite. It's more like giving everyone a leg up at the start rather than after people started beating them. But you're right. If you if you're lagging for longer than the rest of the table, you will still be able to benefit from that charity for longer than 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 other people will.
0: Then have this. Uh, what is this game called? Saith. Never Saith, heard Never heard of it. In Scythe, you know, I was thinking about how it has to have a catch-up mechanic, because that's everything. It does in a way, too. If you think about it, that if you are in a losing battle and you know you're going to lose, you, can, you get a free battle card out of it, as long as you wager something. So that's something to assist you later on in the game. So it is essentially a catch-up mechanic. I don't know that I'd agree with that, because
1: it's a tactic that winning players often employ as well. You can be in first place or last place, it's just an element of a fight. If you know that the fight is hopeless, or if you want to be able to cycle through your battle cards, it's just a small Benny for being on the losing end of a fight. I don't know that I'd call
0: it a catch-up. Well, it decide. is It is a benefit for losing.
1: That's true. Well, losing a particular exchange over the course of the game, not for being in a losing position overall.
0: Tis true. All right, Kalus. If you're not doing so well in Kalus, you're more likely to pass earlier than the players that are doing well. And in passing, now you're making all of their uh, actions cost more money. So it's slowing them down, and it also makes you money when you pass.
1: I, I like it when games are able to introduce a good diminishing returns, especially worker placement games. You know, Kalis was one of the early worker placement games, and I do appreciate it when there's a sort of more organic uh diminishing returns of being able to place your workers or do additional actions for the player that isn't able to do more than just a couple things. It also helps to accelerate the flow of the game so that the player who passed will be getting back into the flow sooner.
0: Next on my list, I have Railroad Tycoon. It's a million different iterations in the one that I've played. I don't know how it differs from everywhere else, but uh your income starts to go down near the end of the game as you progress along the track. So the further you are, the less money you're going to be making.
1: That's one of the things that they kept from Wallace, actually. A lot of Wallace games, like Brass, like Age of Steam, have that element where as you race up the score track, your income sometimes even starts going south. And that's meant to represent a number of crunchy economic things, and it's also meant to represent your attitude towards debt and a whole bunch of other stuff. But yeah, it is a very, very effective uh, way to make sure that the leader is suddenly very constrained and cash poor. Because especially in economic games, where early returns can be used to fund later investments, you might start getting up into a compound interest situation effectively. And so in cir- circumstances like that especially, you might want to look at things like catch-up mechanisms.
0: Now to a game that we have not talked enough about is Torres. Torres is a fantastic game with great components where you're building these towers that look like castles, great action cards which you zip in it outdoors... But whoever is in last place in Torres gets to place where the king is going to go, and that's the person. That's where the majority of the scoring is going to happen. So it gives them that benefit of placing it either on a castle where they have the most control, or one that you know they can get to the easiest.
1: Can I admit to something deeply shameful? You've never played Torres. I've never played Torres. That's terrible. <laughs> I've played Tikal. I've played Mexica. I've never played Torres.
0: Oh huh? well, we'll have to get it out. I have it right upstairs. Well then. All right. Last actual game on my list. I see on the bottom of my list I have just a a generic thing that I should have mentioned at the beginning, but I'll finish with the games because uh, we haven't talked about this and we have to talk about it on every podcast. Yeah, Tigers and Euphrates. People are sick of it. That's too bad because it, it works. In Tigers and Euphrates, if you are collecting a whole bunch of one particular type of resource, it has extreme diminishing returns yes so if you have you know a, a beeline on you know a certain number of victory points like certain colors then after a while it just doesn't matter anymore
1: Tigers and fadies does something else actually that i think achieves the same goal of keeping everyone engaged till the very end but it's slightly different namely the hidden scoring because when the score is hidden very often it doesn't matter if you're losing by 70 points because you don't know it and so it's fine. You can still remain engaged and consistently in there. It, you know, hidden scoring is done for a lot of other reasons, but hidden goals and hidden scoring is often a way to address the same problem. Uh, this is true of any game where, where at the, uh, where at the end you might reveal additional points. Now, obviously, your favorite game of all time, Bunny Kingdom, can do this to an, uh, to an excessive amount. I still haven't played Bunny Kingdom either. I should really try that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm so curious, uh, but you know, a little bit of hidden goals or even a little bit of hidden scoring is often enough that you don't even need any catch-up mechanisms unless you can introduce them organically. As I said, there are a couple instances where I appreciate them when they're organic, when they serve as game accelerants. The whole no ties and skipping thing I think can, can really do it nicely. But when it's more blunt, I tend to prefer if there were other ways to solve it. Although, of course you can't always do the more sophisticated ones in every game, and sometimes you can't have hidden scoring at all. So sometimes you do end up with really good games with blunt catch-up me- mechanisms, and I think the one we both like, that we both agree is super blunt, is probably Comet.
0: Yes, and on the, on the topic of blunt, the last note that I made at the end here was event cards. When games have event cards in the and the the text will say the person with the highest score yeah. gets this slap in the face well and or the person with the lowest score gets this exciting new Benny that is one of the most blunt ways as well for a catch-up mechanic to work
1: yeah event cards are usually if they're completely outside of player's control you know they just come off a, a, a top of a deck you know and one of the reasons why I'm surprised I'm a little bit surprised you like Orleans so much is precisely because it has these just random events at the start of every round which it's is markedly less clean than than a lot of other things in the design i i just i very rarely is it the case that i think that that a random event card at the top of every round really adds to the game true
0: uh, but that falls into the the category as if you play it often enough you know these events are and it's not so random because it's because you know these events are coming. Like, it's the same events almost every game. Now that they have the, the new events, you know, it's going to be changed up a little bit. But they're graduated, and, and you know they're coming, so you can sort of prepare for them.
1: I'm not saying it's a huge problem in... in oh, yeah, like, no. Don't get me wrong. No,
0: but I had to jump in, in defense. Just, just defense. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: I find it striking, actually, when a game works... Despite not having any of the tools to deal with any of these problems, one that comes to mind is el grande. It doesn't have any hidden scoring and it doesn't have any catch up mechanisms at all it's just and it doesn't even really have any built in table talk or negotiation. It's just the game is so fluid and dynamic, and the ability for uh people behind to catch up through clever play is such that it really doesn't need it. And it's it's really striking when a game is, is able to do that without any of those little tricks. Because, again, I think that hidden scoring and hidden goals are little tricks to just ease out the play experience. Sometimes the less well-designed game is the better play experience. Now, there are exceptions, of course. Tigers and Euphrates is the best designed game ever made and is the best play, player experience ever made. But, uh, you know, things like that. So I think it's fair to say that overall whenever possible we would prefer that it doesn't have catch-up mechanisms and if it does if it is going to have a catch-up mechanism we would rather it be a little bit subtle and uh more organic to the game state rather than something very very clear at a stage in the game or several stages of the game where it's like okay you're in first place here's your punch in the face exactly there you go it rhymes it has to be it has to be true you're in first place here's your fu- punch in the face
0: yeah or cosmic encounter where you're in first place so we're all gonna gang up on you now
1: like five minutes ago you said that, that was a that that was an okay way. To balance out player positions. Nothing, nothing is okay in Cosmic encounter.
0: It's all wrong. It's all bad.
1: Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just rolled a dice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames@gmail.com at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.